Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Philia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Welcome to another episode of Philia Podcasts. Uh, my name is Sadia Hamid, and I am joined today by Hala Al Dosari. Hi, Hala. Thank you for joining us. Hi, uh, Sadia. Uh, nice to, to meet you. Hi. So, Hala, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? What do you do? Well, I'm uh, actually a scholar in gender and health. Um, I am doing a fellowship now at the Center for International Studies at MIT. And uh, my research focuses on um, intimate partner violence against women, uh, on the role of uh, gender norms in shaping and influencing um, the law and rights um, in um, the Arab Gulf states, Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf states. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing, I'm also uh, serve on the advisory board of uh, several human rights organizations and activists. Um, I support the causes of, um, several causes uh, for rights and freedoms uh, inside Saudi Arabia. And of course, wow. I'm living outside Saudi for a while now, for a few years. Wow, that's amazing. So how long have you lived outside of Saudi, if you don't mind me asking? So I did my master's and my PhD, uh, my master's in the UK, my PhD in the US, uh, but I my field work um, was done in, inside Saudi Arabia. It's on um, uh, the prevalence of violence, intimate partner violence against women and the impact it has on, on their uh, healthy status. I uh, did 200 interviews with women from uh, selected uh, primary health care centers uh, in Jeddah and Saudi Arabia. And then visiting Saudi uh, sorry? Did you say 700 interviews? 200. 200 interviews. Oh. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was my, for the, for my dissertation. And then I uh, published, uh, you know, some of the findings. Uh, I did, um, you know, also uh, part of this is uh, working with groups um, around the, the uh, gender equality, because violence is very much like a symptom of uh, suppression of women and means for controlling women, especially in places where um, the social norms and the um, uh, legal framework uh, are not well developed to protect women from the repercussions of, uh, of violence. Uh, okay, so, so I was more active because because of this, basically. You can't really treat violence as a, an isolated phenomenon. You have to look into the whole ecological framework uh, yes. around it. Mm-hmm. So um, what is the legal framework Um, in Saudi for women experiencing violence, particularly intimate partner violence, what what recourse to legal help do they have? Well, very limited, I would say, very limited. But because of the um, media exposure and the uh, online discussion, Saudi Arabia, uh, luckily, uh, used to be one of the countries with the highest penetration of the Internet. The users of, uh, for instance, Twitter platform. Uh, yeah. from Saudi Arabia are very much like more than any other uh, countries. Wow. Uh, so we believe that this has helped a lot in uh, shedding light on the prevalence of the problem, on the details of the problem and lack of any means of support. But a few years back, Saudi Arabia has enacted a law 
uh, called the Protection from Abuse Law, and it's not specific to violence against women. While addressing all forms of violence, whether it's um, uh, targeting women, children, uh, migrant workers, anyone who um, was affected by by violence, and it is a very uh, limited in definition. So it doesn't define arbitrary deprivation of liberty, uh, forced uh, marriage, or marital rape uh, as part of violence, and it doesn't have a specific um, uh, regulations on what kind of act uh, can be can can lead to some kinds of protection. There is no, for instance, deterrence order uh, for abusers, for instance. Uh, so a woman has um, the burden to prove that she is experiencing violence if there is no physical um, you know, symptoms uh, that is severe enough to warrant her uh, uh, protection. Mm-hmm. So for instance, someone who has um, psychological violence, systematic psychological violence, and she would mm-hmm. report uh, to the authorities this, they would just inform, they will have some kind of um, a mediation, family mediation by social workers, and they mm-hmm. will ask uh, the abuser, which is usually mostly, of course, uh, a person from the family who is a woman guardian, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, sign a pledge to refrain from any kinds of um, abuse. And this pledge is used as a legal document while returning the woman back to the abuser even if she was admitted to a shelter, she can't stay in a shelter for more than a definite period. And then she's released either to the abuser or to another member of the family who is usually ending up returning her to the abuser. And this is where the idea of the guardianship became such a monumental idea in fighting violence, you know, in, um, in, at, at any level. Mm. Because if the guardian still control the women's choices, her chances mm. first to, to report the abuse and not to lose access to any kinds of choices that she has because as, as, a, as means of retaliation against her. And mm. as means of continuing uh, the guardianship, not only on the women, but on uh, her children, um, that could uh, really jeopardize or compromise her chances of uh, seeking any kinds of justice if it, if it exists. Um, mm. There's only 21 cases of violence reported to courts in a country where 40% of women are reportedly uh, subject to domestic violence, which tells you, of course, the uh, limitations of the law as means to correct or uh, redress the situation of uh, survivors of violence. Right. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like an ineffective law, though, if uh, ultimately mm-hmm. they're returning victims back to perpetrators anyway. Why would a victim put herself in a situation of course, where yeah. knowing where if she reports violence or abuse... She is going to be sent back to the perpetrator eventually anyway. And surely anybody with any common sense would know that returning a victim back to a perpetrator is going to mean that the abuse is going to escalate anyway. Yeah. Well, the idea is that they think of the abuse as very much like justified under under certain conditions. So a man would say, well, I just spotted my daughter speaking to unrelated man or I just found that she's in love with some man or things like that. Or... She ran away from home and I had to restrain her, for instance. Yeah. Uh, things like that, or even uh, for a wife, when they think about, um, there's always this kind of justifications where the social norms still think that a woman is best protected from exploitation, from um, illicit relationships outside of marriage, from uh, basically having to live on her own without her children. Uh, mm. is a worst fate 
than uh, living with uh, abuse or violence. Yeah. So mediation has been always the way uh, in the primitive, uh, if you would think of it, um, prior to the law, basically, uh, societies where families and extended families are usually involved in reducing the impact of violence and deterring the abuser rather than breaking the, the whole family and dissolving the family and having to face with the consequences, who's going to look after the women or the children? Uh, who's going to apply these kinds of uh, moral uh, checks uh, on them, if you would think of it? Um, yeah. So I think it, it, it just signifies the um, multifaceted, you know, um, uh, um, problem of, of violence that it is not only uh, seeking help but really uprooting the whole um, idea of women as uh, uh, part of a family honor, an extension of the family honor, and yeah. uh, basically addressing her as a, a person of a choice in the family who has the same right as men to be on mm -hmm. her own, to live on her own, to have authority over the children, full authority over the children. Yeah. If she's abused, and there is no basically justification of a zero, this should be zero tolerance for violence as mean to resolve conflict. But all of these ideas are very much difficult to promote and to um, uh, socially program basically the society for. If you don't have an active, dynamic civil society of feminists who mm -hmm. can amplify the voices of um, those groups and um, challenge the government for more. Um, more basically uh, forms of protection or deterrence uh, without textbooks, without um, educational, uh, basically preparedness at several levels, which is something that internationally the Saudi government has repeatedly, um, you know, um, promised to do. But when it comes mm -hmm. to implication and reality, the action taken, because the society is very much like muted, if you would think of the civil society in Saudi Arabia is muted, there mm. is no one to hold the government accountable on those kinds of levels. Right. So I have a question. Do you think you would be able to do what you do now outside of Saudi, in Saudi? I hope so. Not, not under Mohammed bin Salman, for sure. He has created a very polarized um, uh, environment where people are either with him or against him. It's uh, one of the most severe forms of ultranationalism, where right. he has to be the center of reform. And anyone who is uh, either resisting his agenda for reforms or taking credit for it are going to be targeted. So like I think the, um, so that would be the feminists, the civil society agents, the people who have actually mobilized their communities for years around issues of uh, women's rights or freedom of expression or basically changing the legal uh, structure or framework. Yeah. So I think this is, you know, if you, there, there has been some waves since he became a crown prince in 2017. There has been some waves of arrests that actually targeted the most influential uh, thought leaders and mm -hmm. civil society figures from different groups whether they were religious reformers who were very much like against the establishment of the religious establishment of the state, whether they were active Twitter personality who were commenting uh, on reforms uh, from the perspective of uh, the Saudi society, mm. whether they were feminists who have mobilized for campaign or, and campaigned for uh, years around the issue of the guardianship, around the issue of 
women's rights or restricted mobility. Uh, basically, women did not uh, drove cars, you know, in Saudi Arabia until 2018. Yeah. And uh, they weren't allowed to travel until just uh, this month uh, without the permission of their guardians. So you get to see all the fruits of their labor are being now um, credited to Mohammed bin Salman because most of those women have been silenced, have been imprisoned, have been tortured, and mm. somehow made an example that no one should take the credit for these things but the leadership. And no yeah. one should basically lead an independent uh, group for mobilizing the society or uh, demanding some reforms. So every all these women that had been leading the campaigns to be able to drive, to, be, to, to abolish male guardianship laws, I mean, they've been doing that for many years, right? Even yeah. decades, some of them. Yeah, um, some of them for, since 1990. Uh, but the newer generations who were targeted are people who have been active since 2010 online because we don't have any kinds of association life, associational life. We don't have any kinds of independent civil society organizations. So the main um, uh, platform for people to uh, organize and share their thoughts and mobilize their community was the social media. So right. most of these women were writers, were academics, were um, activists who joined the movement just to uh, use their own leverage and position to mm -hmm. uh, rally their, their communities for more support. So around the lifting the driving ban, when the first call uh, of Manal al-Sharif was in 2011, was halted by the Saudi government uh, by her arrest. Other people, uh, Iman al-Nafjan, Lujain al-Hadlul, uh, Aziz al-Yusuf, most of these figures actually have uh, found an opportunity to go back and do another campaign in 2013. Mm -hmm. and calling women to drive individually and to keep on applying pressure until, of course, Lujain Lhadlul and Maysa Al-Amudi were both um, arrested and transferred for uh, charges related to national security, undermining the state's um, uh, security uh, by these kind of calls, which is calls very much like very peaceful and very uh, basic, if you would think of it. But mm. this kind of, you know, aggressive response to uh, civil society agents somehow makes the, makes the slightest uh, mobilization extremely risky for people. And it just gives the negative messages for people inside Saudi Arabia that this is not something safe to support, even if you need it. So mm. you get to see now more and more people running out from Saudi Arabia and making a scene online and catching mm. basically the attention of the international media while mm. doing so. So women who are trapped in different airports, young Saudi women who feels that there is no way that they would be able to demand the rights or find legal redress within Saudi Arabia. So mm. they're caught on camera while in uh, different airports trying to resist their deportation back to Saudi. Some of them succeed and some are not. Maybe the case of Rahaf al-Qanun has been the most uh, um, you know, widely shared uh, online mm. and in the international media. Uh, when people feel that they've already, um, they don't have a way basically to to um, uh, find find uh, resolutions for their grievances, then they tend to be more um, in, the, in their desperate basically quest for uh, resolutions. They tend to be more taking more risks actually, mm. like those women. Uh, we've seen an immigration from Saudi Arabia, for instance, for asylum seeking increases 
up to 100, 900% from, uh, you know, 2013. So 900% increase in the number of people who are applying for asylum has increased uh, because of this kind of repressive environment within Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So why do you think Rahaf's case received so much attention? Because, there's, I mean, like I'm working with Saudi women at the moment who have left <laughs> Saudi and aren't yeah. uh, getting asylum straight away. They aren't um, taken seriously. One case that I was working on, the Home Office told her that they didn't believe anything about her story, one, but also that things are getting better now for Saudi women. So why do you really need asylum? Why do you think, one, um, that Rahab's case got so much attention? And two, um, what do you think of this... of this this behavior from like the home office or you know yeah. sort of saying that things are getting better now in Saudi yeah. what would you say yeah yeah so let's just start with the Rahaf um, case which has been very much like landmark mm-hmm. I think it's in terms of timing and in terms of um, what precedes Rahaf's case so what precedes Rahaf's case is the arrest of the women activists in a in a brutal way. You know, we did have arrests of women activists before. You know, Saudi Arabia has never been tolerant of any kinds of activism. But it yeah. hasn't been prolonged. It hasn't uh, been accompanied by defamation campaign in national uh, print media, where women faces were printed with the word traitors on the first pages wow. uh, without any trial, like two days after the arrests, where, where wow. the crown prince himself would come in a Bloomberg and say, well, these women were traitors who were engaging in... Uh, uh, foreign intelligence communication and taking money for it without any proof to support his claims. Um, so this kind of, you know, high-level defamation of people have somehow sensitized the world to the gruesome relationship between Saudi Arabia leadership and the women. Yeah. That there is no kind, there's the, the, the whole kind of basically facade of supporting women's rights is not necessarily genuine because you wouldn't yeah. do that and you wouldn't subject women to Brutal torture, electrocution, yeah. you know, sexual assault, you know, uh, waterboarding, flogging, mm. you know, the bruises uh, remained with women several months, up to six months after uh, the, the end of their torture. So, mm. and, and women, of course, has sustained, uh, you know, one of the, two of the women, at least we knew of, um, have attempted suicide. Um, and we knew that some of the women, uh, you know, everlasting long-term um, you know, outcomes of the torture, uncontrollable shaking, and of course, the trauma that associates with all these things. Yeah, of course. Uh, so what what happened with Rahaf is that her story came right after all those events happened. And the other thing that happened with Rahaf is that, of course, the Khashoggi is killing everything that that, that yes. plays within this kind of you know um, uh, increased uh, sense of responsibility towards uh, a regime that is stopping at nothing, you know, at getting at people who are critical or making yeah. a scene, basically. So yeah. somehow those kinds of uh, preceding events uh, had supported her, her request for asylum. And we had immediately before Rahaf a similar case of a woman who was trapped as well at a, an airport. And she asked a fellow uh, uh, traveler to record the message of help. Now, this woman wasn't as lucky as uh, her name was Dina Lesloom. Uh, her, her case wasn't as successful as that of Rahaf. What happened mm-hmm. with Dina is that uh, you know, the, the, her uncle, who's an influential member of the government, has able to lobby the embassy in Philippines 
um, to force her deport- deportation. And the way they took her to the airport, to the to, back to the plane, was like she was, you know, uh, mouth bound. Uh, you know, her her hands and, and feet were tied, and people mm-hmm. were actually witnesses of these kinds of treatment. You know, just pulling the women from the airport and putting her by force tied up and returning her by force to Saudi Arabia. This was something that really caught the attention of the world. So I think the gruesome uh, details of what happens to women, especially that they all are young women, or very much mm-hmm. like without any kinds of protection once they go back, of course they're going to be handed to their uh, conservative families. Someone like Rahab, who has openly talked about her uh, atheism, mm-hmm. and she wouldn't go back to Saudi, and she had videos of the case um, online. I mean, she would definitely be bound to be you know, severely punished, if not killed, uh, either by the state or her family. Uh, we're not yeah. very much like religiously tolerant, you know, not within the family or within the uh, the legal system. Yeah. Uh, so I think this idea of, uh, you know, what happened before Rahaf has set the stage for more of a responsible action when it comes to another victim. Mm. Um, so I think that that is exactly like what happened when Khashoggi was killed. The FBI went to the dissidents in the U.S. to check on their safety. Now, all of these things were not uh, part of the protocol or the procedure, but they were prompted and somehow uh, triggered by the by the, um, the, the the revelation that happened from uh, the details, of the, the basically the coordinated effort of the government to lure Khashoggi and to kill him within the consulate. Mm. Uh, so I think you know all of these things have somehow set the stage to a more careful and considerate action when it comes mm-hmm. to how they deal with the Saudi, um, uh, you know, dissidents or Saudi uh, asylum seekers. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether the, the Home Office would be, uh, you know, right in uh, assuming that things are changing within Saudi Arabia. We have to think of the main reasons why people are seeking asylum from Saudi. Uh, yeah. The first one, of course, is uh, people who have opinions which are critical of the government for political reasons, basically, whether they were journalists, or individual citizens, average citizens, or women, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so political uh, asylum, really, uh, um, they have very legitimate case because now in Saudi Arabia, and as of least what we witnessed from the treatment of um, the waves, basically, of arrests that I've talked about, the treatment of feminists inside of Saudi Arabia, the control of the media, and the onslaught that is happening against anyone who is critical of Saudi Arabia, including heads of states like Qatar, for instance. Mm. or uh, uh, Turkey, or because Turkey actually exposed the whole thing. Um, yeah. So you get to see how the media has been very much like a tool to enforce uh, the narrative of the state and to, to target anyone who's critical or who's even not critical but trying to put some reason into the, the collective thinking. Um, so this is one thing. The political um, asylum seekers are definitely uh, people who are at risk and they should be uh, taken, you know, the request should be taken uh, really seriously. Uh, yes. Now, when we're talking about the different types of people seeking asylum who are not political figures, who are not uh, journalists necessarily, or active, well-known activists who have actually uh, good influence within Saudi Arabia, when we're talking about people who are leaving Saudi Arabia because of fear of their religious, um, exposing their religious beliefs, if they're not Muslims anymore, if they've been critical of Islam, if if they have been. Uh, within the uh, within their social settings or within um, basically or online on any kinds of uh, online uh, platform uh, or people with uh, sexual affiliations that is different basically from the, from the mainstream uh, mm. bisexual homosexuals or people who are 
for instance, um, uh, having violence at home or survivors of violence, uh, they had to endure that. Um, so all these types of people, people with um, survivors of violence or um, people with uh, different religious or sexual affiliations, um, they definitely don't have the protective mechanisms within Saudi Arabia. And their positions they remain very vulnerable. Uh, mm-hmm. Their liberty could be affected, their um, uh, safety at home or in their social settings uh, once their beliefs become um, publicized or become known to their social uh, networks. Uh, mm-hmm. Their safety is very much like questionable. The government would not protect them, uh, and their family and social settings are very much likely uh, either to punish them, uh, especially if they're women, uh, yeah. deprive them of, li- of liberty, and get away with it. Uh, yeah. So means of accountability within uh, the Saudi system for these things are very much like limited. Saudi Arabia remains very much committed to its own brand of Islam uh, as a, uh, a source of uh, uh, legislation and a source of uh, social uh, learning. So if you're someone who's gay and who's trying to talk openly, even within your own circles, there is no way that you can protect your safety within Saudi Arabia. Even if you're not someone who is uh, dealing with the government directly or someone has filed the case against you, you will be subjected to abuse and you can't really claim that people abused you because of your sexuality and, and you get some redress. Actually, you will be punished if you go to a court and or a police station and says, well, I've been abused because of my affiliation. So wow. I think what's happening internationally is this kind of increase the flood of immigration from different countries and not necessarily from Saudi Arabia, but this yeah. rise of authoritarianism that is sweeping um, the, the, the region, uh, not in, in, in the Middle East, I mean, sweeping the region from the U.S., from the uh, liberal democracies in the West to, uh, you know, the Far East. It's mm. all over, actually. It's very much like there's a strong uh, far-right authoritarian, uh, you know, uh, rise that is happening now. And, of course, it, this kind of, it's very much like um, legitimized by, by the public approach. So there's this uh, kind of, you know, um, legis- uh, the, the, the idea of uh, immigration or the uh, economy and how it would mm-hmm. suffer from those kinds of... Uh, complete uh, overpowering number of immigrants who are uh, seeking those kinds of social and economic benefits on the expenses of the of the local people just uh, raise this kind of unex- unrest and anxiety among the uh, host countries and they're trying to push back against it and yeah. of course it's a very late response because it would have been much easier if the international relations has taken a priority uh, and how to correct the behaviors of uh, authoritarian countries or repressive countries. But the international relations haven't been invested enough uh, by the liberal democracy. That mm. one factor, uh, one outcome of that is that, you know, when repression really is out of hand, people can't find safety in their own countries. And, and then it's the liberal democracies that became the only countries where people can safely seek uh, asylum because you can't really travel to Dubai or to Malaysia or to Philippines because they will be deported, unfortunately. So I think it is um, a dilemma that really um, is beyond the control of a home office or uh, one country in the liberal democracy. It really warrants more 
of um, strategizing, strategizing with different countries, with countries that are the hotspot for asylum seekers on how to uh, basically look into a long-term, uh, um, not only a strategy, but long-term a principle to uphold mm-hmm. in dealing with uh, repressive countries. Because they will be at the end, they will be at the receiving end, you know, at mm-hmm. one point or the other. It's not going to be only a, a, a problem that is localized within those countries. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to really turn back against them at one point or the other. Uh, yeah. What's happening to the immigrants in the U.S. is completely shameful. Completely shameful. What's happening to the families? What's happening in the border? The the language used to to brand them as uh, you know as to be blamed for the situation, as to be attacked, as to be legitimately um, criminalized, and mm-hmm. uh, as deserving of this kind of demeaning behavior. It's, it's disheartening that they had to flee horrible situations to end up separated and some of them are dying, like children dying in, in cages. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, you can't really fathom that these things are happening now in, you know, in the U.S. out of all places, which is an, a nation of immigrants. Yeah. So I, I wanted to um, go back because I realized we haven't got a huge amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about the 200 interviews that you did with victims of intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what were the themes that emerged from that, from all of the women that yeah. you spoke to? Was there, were, were there any themes that emerged that you felt, yeah. I really must talk about this? Yeah. So it's several things. Well, basically the study used an ecological model, which is looking not only at the, it looks at the social determinant of uh, women's health, basically their socio-ecological position, the position with the family, how long they've been married, uh, whether mm. they are socially isolated or not. Um, whether the um, the husband's profession in the military or in civil uh, jobs may be different or not, and also uh, looking at uh, how women perceive the relationship uh, within the family, whether they um, they believe that the husband has more rights uh, than the wife in decisions related to a woman, for instance, the choice of uh, uh, friends, um, uh, uh, whether. Uh, problems within the house can be uh, related to people outside the house or not, uh, which plays a major role in women seeking help uh, behavior. Uh, okay. Also, um, we give them a set of scenarios in which uh, it's okay for a man to beat his wife to see if women accepted the scenario. Now, the oh. study is not representative of um, the Saudi society at large, but is representative to a new segment of the Saudi society where women are not in the, not educated, uh, not uh, sorry, um, employed, very much like financially de- dependent on the husband, mm-hmm. and uh, coming from uh, middle to low middle socioeconomic status, because it was uh, conducted in uh, uh, public primary healthcare settings, um, mm-hmm. and I tried to to, to basically pick uh, districts that are as diverse as possible, so districts or the affluent residents and districts with um, you know more of a uh, lower social class. But then, even in, in districts with uh, affluent residents, uh, you know, affluent women would not go to primary health care clinics. They would have access to private uh, health care. Mm. So this is one of the things. It doesn't really represent, uh, you know, maybe the elites or the uh, more affluent and educated and employed women. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what emerged is uh, like uh, what we know all about Saudi Arabia. Women are not as uh, as employed as men, very much like 
most of the women were very educated, like 12 years of education or more. But at the same mm-hmm. time, their education did not lead to jobs. So, so then most of them were financially dependent. Those who were financially dependent on their husbands were more likely to be beaten by their husbands uh, because they don't have this means of income or property. Women very much like poor. Uh, they didn't own any properties or anything. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is uh, um, that emerged is that uh, most women believed in a, a husband's um, uh, right to be the head of the family. So right. they would definitely not disclose any kinds of uh, problems or private information to people outside, even if it would help the women. And they wouldn't involve uh, in um, mitigating a problem or intervene on behalf of other women who are being beaten by their husbands because it's a family issue. Uh, the other thing that emerged as well is that uh, around half of the women accepted one or more reason uh, for a husband uh, to, ha- to beat his wife. Uh, so among those reasons, like uh, if she's disobedient, if she burned the food, if she uh, didn't sleep with she him, if she, yeah. Wow, okay. If she uh, basically uh, didn't uh, sleep with him, if, uh, uh, she, uh, if he was unfaithful, for instance. If, but, but 90% of the women said that the husband has the right to uh, beat his wife if she was unfaithful, not if he suspects, but if he, if she actually, uh, if he spotted her while she was unfaithful. Uh, so you get to see this kind of, you know, violence justification plays out. You know, there is a justification of violence, so we, we deserve it, basically. Uh, even, amongst, and, even amongst victims? Uh, yeah, among women who are victims. So in my study, 45% of women uh, exp- experienced uh, physical violence by their intimate partner. Most of the violence that were experienced were mild. Uh, it means it's happening uh, along their lives. It's not. Um, it's not only in uh, like you know, in single incidents. It's more. It's more than one, three incidents. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a pattern of of dealing with certain problems. Twenty-five uh, percent mm-hmm. of women in my studies uh, had experienced sexual uh, abuse before they are they were for fifteen years of age. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, members of the family were involved in those kinds of sexual abuse. Um, so, I mean, the main theme that comes of it is um, how to change the norms around women role in the family to become more equal and how to make sure that there is no justification for violence, for use of violence, especially physical violence. And in my study, 18% of women sustained uh, injuries because of those kinds of violence, but only 6.5% disclose the very reason of their injuries to healthcare providers. Again, goes back to the idea, are healthcare providers trained enough to screen uh, women for violence or to identify women who are survivors of violence? Because their role could be monumental, not only in documentation of those issues, which can be helpful for women, but also in referring women to services if they exist. It was very uh, interesting for me to see that social workers, if they exist in different primary healthcare clinics, were females, so it's easy to access, to access. But those females had locked themselves up in their offices, and they only see women by referral from a doctor and by appointment. And if you can imagine those women are being taken to the primary health care clinics by their husbands most of the time, it's kind of impossible for them to be uh, as open or disclosing. So if it didn't happen at the point of first um, encounter with the nurse or with the physician, it might not ever happen again. Uh, yeah. well, you know, I have women who are in halfway through my 
um, interview because it's one-on-one, so I couldn't let anyone come. And I always presented the interview to people as interview about women's health. Right. Uh, so, you even, so you couldn't even say that it was about sexual violence or domestic abuse? I couldn't say that, but I can, of course, we told the women when we made, I told the women when I meet them that, yes, uh, this is about the, uh, this is the true nature of the study, but to protect you and to protect you from any kinds of retaliation, I haven't told mm-hmm. anyone. Uh, right. Because the minute her husband or relatives are aware of it, they might actually, you know, pressure her to, to disclose what she said, or if not, uh, retaliate against it. And, you know, I had, I had men actually feeling so fed up from having to wait after the end of the appointment. And barging into the room to take the women out. Wow. <laughs> you, get to, you get to see that. Because part of the violence is the controlling behavior where the husband feels he has to observe and control whatever the woman is doing in every sitting. Uh, so, uh, so the, basically, okay. yeah. So basically, it is a, it's a, again a problem that needs, uh, you know, a, a different collaboration and it. It is good to have um, voices of women as ways to change those kinds of norms, which is not yet happening inside Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that they've established a protection from violence uh, in institutions, but they represent mm. the political norms of the state rather than uh, the needs of the women. Right? They never actually reform the protocols or procedures to reflect what women need, rather than to have a basically... Um, means for the world to know, yes, we do have means to, de- to deal with violence. Whether these mm-hmm. means were effective, reflective of the needs of the women is really not part of the discussion. Um, I'm part of a Harvard-led initiative called Every Woman. So over yeah. the last few years, since 2015 until now, we've been developing and we've already finished drafting a global treaty to combat violence against women and girls. Um, yeah. This global treaty has been the work of 147 uh, volunteer scholars and activists and survivors of violence mm-hmm. from 200 countries, I think, you know, I think 35 countries, I'm sorry. Yeah. So uh, they represent different groups, different regions, different expertise, judges, you know, lawyers, uh, scholars, uh, health workers, as well as activists and uh, survivors of violence. Uh, I've led the part about the um, education and training um, of the first responders and the, the drafting of that part, as well as the um, uh, textbooks within uh, elementary schools and the programs, basically, that sensitize the society to the uh, adverse effects of violence that truly transcend a woman into her children. It becomes more like a cycle of violence, uh, mm. both uh, you know, within the society and intergenerational. Mm. Um, so we are hoping that we're now in the process of trying to get the support of the World Health Organization as a leading organization that really did a lot of uh, 10 country studies and several studies on intimate partner violence against women mm. to uh, house this kind of treaty. If it was housed within the UN, there is this kind of um, uh, political responsibility on state members to report what they did according to the uh, treaty's um, uh, criteria and indicators. So okay. there will be measures, for instance, of uh, whether there will be educational texts in, the, um, in different uh, levels of schooling, whether there will be preparedness to the first-line uh, first responders, whether there will be public programming, uh, whether there will be hotline, and what are the outcomes of the hotline, because you can have a hotline 
But what happens if um, uh, the calls remain very much like the women wouldn't find the solution that she's looking for? Um, so I think we're in the uh, we're in the stage now, and it's it's, ha- it's really gaining a lot of traction among different uh, political groups. Uh, we're mm. in the stage of negotiations, so that uh, hopefully the UN uh, would adopt it as a single treaty and have uh, those kinds of um, uh, recommendations as benchmarks uh, for different countries. But yet we were not we're not yet um, done with it. It's a longer process, and I hope. Um, more activists and more people from different countries and regions uh, would lend it, would lend their support for the implementation of the treaty. The other thing that really does need to happen, though, if the UN is to adopt the Every Woman Treaty, is that there is some kind of some kind of penalty for not for non-compliance. You know, for instance, giving Saudi a seat at the table at the UN. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, another issue as well. That um, so there has been a lot of studies with the the UN has succeeded in promoting human rights culture across the globe over the years since they were uh, implemented in forty five or something, nineteen forty five. So there's a there is a reason for hope, (laughs) which is um, a book by Catherine. uh, I think it's she's a professor at Harvard, and mm. she uh, elaborated that despite the um, limitations of the UN as an institution, and mm. the very much uh, the gravity of uh, commitment, if you would think international commitment to mm. um, hold certain uh, governments accountable, mm. uh, the uh, situation or status of human rights have progressed actually across the globe because of those frameworks, because of those treaties, and because of raising generations who are very much committed to uphold and um, define what human rights are in their own countries and communities. But again, Mm -hmm. it's very much like uh, a battle between what is sovereign and what is international commitment. Uh, this This has always been the battle within the UN. When can the UN intervene to say, this is something that you have to implement as a state member, or the state could say, we're a sovereign state that has its own references, which has always been cultural and Islam, or cultural and religion, tradition and religion, mm. um, and we can't really force that those concepts on people. Mm. Uh, it's it's been like the uh, countries have been parricading themselves behind those kinds of um, justifications why civil and political rights could not be fulfilled why mm. representation of people uh, weren't as um, stipulated in the uh, Declaration of Human Rights. It's a, mm. it's a, it's a battle that is ongoing, first because uh, the United Nations is, need to remain as a, a house that represents all nations. Mm-hmm. But in reality, that means that they will represent bad nations, <laughs> bad leaderships, not nations, mm. but bad leaderships or bad governments, mm. authoritarian governments repressive mm-hmm. governments, um, you know, um, corrupt governments. Uh, mm-hmm. They will have to deal with those governments, but the means available to who's the leader in those kinds of um, holding those governments accountable, applying pressure on those governments, what kinds of tools that work and that doesn't work. This is like a big hole in international relations studies, mm-hmm. right? Because you would require people who are committed politically, 
But like mm-hmm. what we've seen in Canada, for instance, when uh, the foreign minister of Canada tried to publicly call out Saudi Arabia for the imprisonment of a women human rights defender, Samar Badawi, who has mm-hmm. been uh, awarded the most courageous women by the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, of course, in full sleep under the claims of treason. Saudi Arabia yeah. decided to sever, its, its, sever its, its relationships with Canada and to call back all the scholarship students, Saudi students in Canada, can you imagine? So it yeah. just went all the way in trying to uh, cut Canada out and push Canada to um, in a position where they're not commenting on any kinds of uh, domestic affairs. Mm. So what happened is that the world has watched that without lending its support to Canada. Yeah. So that has been an, a missed opportunity, basically, for the world to give uh, solidarity and support to those kinds of actions, which yeah. really is necessary um, to repress, uh, you know, autocratic governments or, or uh, uh, to deter repression. Uh, mm. Because it's one thing to say we're for the rule of law, we're for universal uh, values of uh, human rights, but it's another, another way, another, you know. Um, uh, issue at all to actually give solidarity to those kinds of positions and to support those kinds of positions. Uh, at the heart of everything is um, the different uh, views of different countries when it comes to how to deal with authoritarian governments or repressive governments. Some of mm-hmm. them would somehow prioritize their economic interests over mm-hmm. their uh, principles, especially with election, uh, with elected uh, members. Like we've seen that in Sweden, because uh, politicians, not necessarily holding their principles, but they do they do come from very principled position. They do come from, uh, you know, the Green Party, for instance, or feminist parties like uh, Margaret Wallström, who is the Swedish foreign minister, who raised mm-hmm. the repression of Saudi Arabia's, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, bloggers who are advocating for religious freedom or liberalism, for instance, like Raif Badawi. And yeah. she was completely, you know, attacked by the Saudi government. They banned her from attending the, the Cairo conference that she was supposed to attend. We spoke against her aggressively. But what happened is that uh, powerful elites uh, in the business community and corporate business within Sweden have actually lobbied against her. And this also happened in Spain. Uh, you know, the Spanish manufacture uh, of uh, military ships. They went yeah. against their government to, to demand that they withdraw any kinds of negative remarks against Saudi Arabia. So right. for elected people, elected, and this is another dilemma, how do elected people represent principles rather than uh, the public opinion? Yeah. So Hala, before we go, mm-hmm. um, could you please, um, just before we wrap up, could you tell us if there's anything that you want the women that are listening to know if there's anything that they, that you want to say to them as like final words, if there's any way they can get involved, help, support, um, yeah. any final messages. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, through my work on advocacy, I've noticed that um, things work. Um, a good testament of the um, mobilization that happened in Saudi Arabia to the uh, importance and role of, uh, and role of uh, women's rights activists is that we are seeing now more and more um, ease of restrictions on women that has been severely uh, resisted before. Um, and because of that, women activists have been uh, targeted. Uh, and it worked, and you know, pressure, international pressure works. We've seen some of those activists released and reinstated back to their job. 
we've mm. seen uh, the media campaign against them mm. has some has somewhat uh, you know um, subsided now. So mm. we do believe that keeping the pressure when it comes to and even in the case of Jamal Khashoggi, we've seen how the Saudi government have finally admitted. Uh, the responsibility for the killing and have actually set up court uh, trials for those involved, although it might mm-hmm. be, be not very much like visible. But at the same time, we believe that um, the uh, lending solidarity, keeping these things as part of the discussion, speaking out not only from the level of diplomatic circles or human rights organization, but from different levels, associations uh, related to lawyers, for instance, associations related to uh, women in the media, Mm. Uh, it, it really helps elevate the profiles of those targets because of their activism or uh, because of their opinions. And it would uh, eventually lead uh, to their release. So really, we have to keep uh, you know, pushing for those women and uh, raising their uh, cases uh, publicly mm. as much as we can. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful to talk to you. And Hala, if you ever want to come on again, I realize we had a very short session this time, but if you do want to ever come on again, please do, um, please do get in touch. And if there's anything that we can ever do to help or support, please do let us know. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. You take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.